Mike Side, my guest on episode 39, was possibly your dinner guest, Weeknights. He delivered the news on WDBJ7 for many years. We got our first look at Keith Humphrey in 1980. He retired in May of 2011 after 31 years at WDBJ7. 30 years as 6 p.m. anchor. Today, Keith Humphrey continues to call Roanoke home. Keith, welcome to the podcast. You know, it's a thrill to be asked to do anything that involves <laughs> broadcasting these days. It's been a long time, but uh, thank you. Well, thank you for being my guest. Yeah, when you first got into television, uh, after uh, a time, I guess, doing some radio, there wasn't a, nothing called a podcast, right? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, that was not even uh, imagined, I guess. You came to Roanoke from Delaware. That's right. How did you wind up in the Star City? Um, I met the fellow who hired us both at WDBJ, Jim Shaver, mm. at a radio and television news director's convention in Las Vegas um, in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. And he was um, a unique fellow, as you know. And I, he and I hit it off and just talked and chatted about our, uh, how we saw things differently right. um, at the convention. And I don't know if it was a year or two later, hmm. he called me up one day, um, and I was I was the news director at uh, WHYY uh, Wilmington, Philadelphia. Okay. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, actually, I think my days here are numbered. And he said, come down here and talk to me about uh, being a Lynchburg bureau chief. And I thought, well, I guess I'll talk to anybody about <laughs> A job, but sure. I don't know that I had much interest in being in a bureau. Nonetheless, I came down, we rode over to Lynchburg, and one thing led to a weekend anchor job, and that's where I started. Wow, I never knew that. But, you know, the one thing I can say about Jim Shaver, he always knew what he wanted, and his gut knew he was making the right choice. That's right, yeah. Absolutely. He was uh, emphatic about uh, his view of things. Mm -hmm. And i got to say, most of the time he was right about it. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, full disclosure, this is one of the nicest December days to be out on your porch ever. So I guess we should cherish every moment that we're getting oh, in, I know. in December yeah, I and know. temperatures close to 70 degrees. Did you expect to stay in Roanoke for 31 years? Oh, no, no. Um, I thought after a gig in public television, mm -hmm. which was really my first full-time job out of graduate school, that I would maybe come here for 18 months, mm -hmm. get a little more experience, and go back to D.C. where I had been in school and really wanted to do political stuff. Obviously, I fell in love with Roanoke, the people and the job. Um, so, yeah, 30 years later... I'm 40 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so what made you decide on television news? I thought, and still do think, that the visual medium is the way to communicate with people, sight and sound. Mm -hmm. um, I really, more than anything, enjoyed doing just what you do, which is interview people and find out... Um, 
I like doing the long-form interviews, mm -hmm. although TV news, you know, is notorious for its 12-second sound clips. <laughs> True. But I like doing, um, and, and Jim Shaver, the news director, gave me the opportunity to do documentaries and do some longer-form stuff, so it was a good fit for me. What made you decide, I mean, we, we talk about television news, was was being an anchor always something you had hoped to do or would you have early on would you have rather been a reporter out in the field i would rather have been just a reporter for some goofy reason if somebody wants to pay you to do uh be the the the, the central figure the anchor uh they tend to pay you more mm -hmm. And so somehow or other, I fell into this position where I could be a dayside reporter and then anchor the news at 6 o'clock and go home. I think it's pretty much unheard of <laughs> then or now. You know, most TV anchors work, uh, say, a 2 to midnight shift, mm -hmm. and it's a long slog of one, one program after another. And if you do any reporting, it's uh, a sideline and you have to squeeze it in where you can. But, you know, I'd come in whenever I could and sometimes worked seven days a week. But um, I loved anchoring. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed being the, the guy who was sort of pulling the pieces together and being more aware of the day's news as a package. Sure. But um, I also liked being able to focus on one or sometimes two or three stories in a day just to be I could get more deeply into those stories and then even though I would review the scripts that other people wrote for me to read um, and make some changes to my satisfaction to my reading comfort I like both hmm. but you you've sort of hit the the, the the target that I had which was reporting yeah but the anchor job pays better <laughs> well that's true do you feel and I don't know if you follow news today like you did when you were involved in it. Do you feel something is missing today that you had when you were at the anchor desk or out doing a story? I do, uh, certainly do, but I'm not sure I can put my finger on what it is that's missing. Uh, it seems like uh, the news is, um, you know, and of course it's so... So there's such a division between, you know, this, I hate to even use the phrase fake news, but uh, what is news anymore? I, I'm, even if I didn't have other reasons to be in retirement, I'm not sure I'd know what to do with a newscast these days because it's all very different. Well, and it does make you wonder on a local level. I mean, you've got newscasts starting at 4 p.m. Uh, and, and running straight through until 7, 7.30 and I have to wonder, are the stories being covered or just rehashed? Oh, I think you've answered the question right okay, there. Okay, we'll move it's, on then. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, there isn't enough news in this market no. to do three hours of news. Mm -hmm. And certainly, uh, the, I think the viewers have noticed that that's the same story they saw at 4, 5, 10, 11 the night before. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? I mean, you can repackage it and change it, rewrite it even, although I see very little of that. Um, I just don't get it. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm 
what Mike Stevens likes to call old school. <laughs> well, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with old school. And, you know, I have to wonder about the experience level. Of course, I always learned you couldn't get experience without getting a job. But I wonder if the reporters just coming out of school, because it used to be Roanoke was a stepping stone from a Harrisonburg or, or Charlottesville. And now, not necessarily the case. And I just have to wonder, are they, are, are some of the reporters, and it's not all of them, I mean, are, are they learning as, as they report? Or, or are they just going out there, getting the facts, here they are, and now we're going to move on to the next story. I mean, I, th I think about some of the people you worked. I mean, these were heavy hitters and still are for Joe DeShiel. I think of the uh, the Rick Mosiers of the world, the Mark Freibergs, the Richard Reals, and I know there are a ton more you worked with mm -hmm. at WDBJ7. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Virginia Halsey. Sure. A list of folks who were genuine journalists, mm -hmm. and that's not to cast aspersions on folks who are on the air now, but it is different. I think most of them start out with, I want to be on TV. Mm -hmm. What do I have to do? And maybe there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, it was always um, informing people, mm -hmm. uh, journalism first, and then uh, how to package it for television. And is that what's missing today? Journalism first? I think so. Not necessarily, not just on a local level, but in, in the world of news, that may be what's missing. Yeah. At least in my opinion. Reporters would come and go. Working with Ann Compton, that had to be a pretty nice thing. I know Ann Compton. Sure. And I have actually crossed paths with her and had a good conversation with her. I covered uh, Barack Obama's initial inauguration. Mm -hmm. And, of course, she did, too, for ABC. And we wound up in an elevator together in Washington <laughs> on that blistering cold day, inauguration day. And we had a lovely chat about what a great place to start your career. Yeah. Um, even though, I guess for her, she started, she was a Hollins student. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my favorite parts of her story is when she first got hired at WDBJ, the Roanoke Times headlined the story, little, you know, maybe five paragraphs um, about Ann Compton coming to television in, in Roanoke. Mm -hmm. And the headline was, this is unbelievable to me, because it wasn't that long ago, Nylons in the Newsroom. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, talk about sexist. I mean, that doesn't even qualify. It's just amazing. <laughs> Oh, wow. But uh, well, I guess she was the first female hire for the news department. I don't know, but they, they had other women on the air. Mm -hmm. But as far as a, a, a hardline straight news reporter, she was it. And, and God love her, she was exactly that. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about someone who, who laid the groundwork for many others to, to follow in her footsteps. I don't, well, I don't think anyone could follow in her footsteps. No. Uh, let's talk about some of the front page stories. Your take on the recent race for governor in the Commonwealth. Mm. Governor-elect Yunkin. I don't know what to make of that. Um, it's an interesting puzzle that McAuliffe decided he wanted to 
run again. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you know, Virginia is the last state in the Union that doesn't allow governors to succeed themselves mm -hmm. as a one term. And I don't know if that had something to do with the fact that he, he was sort of uh, secondhand goods or something. Uh, I don't think so. I think it was more uh, the division of of our political nature right now that you know that uh, Youngkin tapped into a dissatisfaction that the uh, the Democrats weren't weren't delivering. Well, I know uh, in a previous podcast I talked to uh, Dr. Bob Denton. And um, and we were talking about Terry McAuliffe, and the fact that Terry McAuliffe, I don't I don't know, and and this is my speculation, was he counting too much on that first term that he won, thinking this was going to be an easier time? I I, I don't know. Well, if he was, he misjudged that one because it's certainly <laughs> a more complicated time, more sure. difficult time. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how he didn't pull it off. I read somewhere that uh, if on the political inside of the party, the mm -hmm. Democratic Party, that the polling showed people confused him with the incumbent, Ralph Northam. Why, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, just because, well, he was a governor, so is he the, the, the current governor? Mm -hmm. I don't know who this is. I mean, you know, people sometimes don't pay that much attention, and we give them more credit than is due Truly. for the Truly. background of politicians. In your days in the anchor chair, what was any given election night like? A nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I hated election night. Um, and one of my great joys is sitting at home with a beer, watching election night now after 30 years of doing it and failing, or by my view, because you, you cannot finesse election night because sure. it's the ultimate unscripted, anything can happen and every, everything will happen. <laughs> and I remember in the old days before there were computers and you would get, con I mean, almost covered with pieces of paper, right. and people would be, you know, like off the set, off camera, handing you the latest returns, and I'm supposed to make sense of this? <laughs> and it's just, I, I, I would have nightmares about it uh, before, I would say during, but before and after, um, because it was an imperfect process. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that I always had to have a scripted show to read. Um, I rather liked uh, winging it from time to time, but the moving target of election night gave me nightmares. I could get that. I really could. How about the, uh, the way news has covered the coronavirus? Would you have wanted to be an anchor dealing with a story that has gone on for nearly two years? It's, that's got to be a frustrating thing to cover, mm -hmm. uh, partly because how do you protect yourself if you're out there uh, drumming up stories, mm -hmm. interviewing people, because I know that at least in the early going, um, you know, everybody sort of uh, reeled it in and didn't go out and cover, right. you know, and they're still doing reporting more by phone. Mm -hmm. uh, the the in-person news gathering has definitely been uh, shortchanged, I think, by the, by the fact. Let's talk about what I call couple of my favorite Keith Humphrey stories that you covered over the years. Uh, one of my favorites you did was uh, Omaha Beach and D-Day. Uh, it, it's been a few years. 
What was that like, being at such a historic place? It was profoundly interesting, and it was an opportunity I never thought I'd have uh, that a local television station would send me overseas to cover that. Uh, but we got wind of the fact that there were a lot of vets, D-Day veterans, mm -hmm. who had been from this area, not just uh, Roanoke, but uh, Martinsville, Lynchburg, and everywhere in between, uh, who had been part of these uh, National Guard units. We've heard a lot about the Bedford Boys, mm -hmm. that A Company of the 29th Infantry. Uh, but it was more than that. It was, uh, you know, a number of units that were pressed into service and um, were the first on the beach. Uh, but anyway, since they were decided the survivors were going back to relive their experiences 50 years later, um, we decided to tag along. And what a privilege that was. You know, if I hadn't been so busy chasing people up and down the sand trying to get their impressions, and I think the... the um, the impression I had um, that most stayed with me was that these guys who were by that time up there in age, uh, 70s and 80s um, year olds. I remember the live shot I did from the American Cemetery in Colville, Samir, midnight France time, six o'clock East Coast time. The, my opening line was, they were all 18 again. Energy and excitement of yeah. these old guys. They were reliving their teens. And because they made it and made it home, maybe not all in one piece, mm -hmm. but survived, and had these memories of the guys who didn't come back, they were just so excited. Mm -hmm. And we owe them this enormous debt for having rid the world of fascism that there's just nothing to compare with that. It's clearly the, the, the greatest story I've ever been able to tell. Well, it was certainly one of my favorites. Another memorable story for me was the Hasem murder trial involving Elizabeth Hasem and Yin Soaring. They were UVA honor students in 85 when their parents, Derek and Nancy, were murdered at their home in Central Virginia. At the time, you actually traveled to England as part of the coverage, which I guess today would be unheard of. Are you surprised Yin Soaring, uh, convicted in Virginia of first-degree murder, serving a life sentence, yet 33 years after he's locked up for double murder, he's returned to Germany and I guess free to roam on the streets of Germany today? Yeah, one of the brightest people, certainly one of the brightest criminals I've ever met. And I mean, he would tell you that he's no criminal, but I, I concluded that he was, that he did what he was accused of, which mm. was killed his girlfriend's parents, because he got mixed up in this notion that she wanted them dead. Miscommunication, but what a horrible thing to misunderstand. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, another example of, you know, a, a medium market television station in of the 1980s um, taking the remarkable step of sending a reporter overseas just to cover the initial hearing uh, in the Magistrate's Court, uh, Bow Street Magistrate's Court in London. And um, I got to say that I had had a fair amount of experience in court coverage at that time, knew absolutely nothing about the 
Crown court process. Mm. I did my best to learn pretty quickly, <laughs> but I got dropped into that, and it was, I think people over there were, were amazed that we were there covering this. In fact, um, the, the process was, it was over and done with rather quickly. Uh, we thought it was going to be a two-day hearing. The hearing I covered was over by lunchtime, mm -hmm. and I called the assignment desk, and I, you know, I essentially filed a quick story. And the assignment editor said, well, I've got another assignment for you, which was, I, with this good news, I'm like, I can stay here for as long as you want. I can settle down. I'll be Charles Collingwood in London reporting for WDBJ. What else you got? The news director had learned that um, Crystal Spring Elementary, the students there were doing a, an exchange program mm. and staying in British homes in a place called Chalfont St. Peter, uh, which was a, about a maybe a two-hour drive west of London. Sure. So I hooked up with a British film crew. Um, we went out there and talked to these kids from South Roanoke. Sure. And, of course, they were flabbergasted. <laughs> Their parents, I guess, were even more flabbergasted to see them on the news. <laughs> <laughs> what a great story. What a great tie-in. We talked about a couple of my favorites. Did you have a favorite story or two over the years? Those two that you mentioned are certainly on the list. But, you know, Larry, i got to say that I did a lot of investigative work um, you know, I got to give the television station great credit for giving me almost carte blanche. You know, if, if I wanted to follow a story and spend days, sometimes weeks, running down, you know, investigating court records and just interviewing people uh, off camera mm -hmm. and getting to the bottom of something, it was a rare day that anybody wanted to talk about the stuff that mattered most to me. Mm -hmm. And I finally made peace with the fact that, as you said at the outset, this is the guy they invited into their home at dinner time, and delivering the news was the primary thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that a lot of the content was lost on the audience. It's as frustrating as that is, I finally made peace with that fact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people wanted to talk about, you know, a story of, Kids, sure, sure, but you know, didn't want to know about the crooked guy down in the transportation museum who was stealing money as much as I did. Was there an event in history you would have wanted to report on? Ooh, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the great answer for it, but <laughs> um, because I I I think of myself as a historian. Um, that's what I studied in college. Mm -hmm. Or maybe another way to look at that, is there someone dead or alive that you would have loved to sit down one-on-one -on -one with for an interview? I can absolutely answer that, and that would be President Lincoln. I've long been obsessed with the nation's 16th president, mm -hmm. and I would love to have been able to um, you know, talk not just about the Civil War and how he managed to hold the country together and put it back together. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, know more about his early life in Illinois. And, um, you know, he was a, a, a unique character in, in his 
integrity. Um, yeah, I would love to talk to Abe Lincoln. Keith Humphrey, I know you have done some teaching. Uh, would you ever consider writing a book about the news business or maybe your favorite president, uh, Abe Lincoln? I mean, the, the, the whole writing thing with Beth Macy, that's worked out pretty well with Dope Sick. <laughs> that's very true. You know, I should have kept notes toward that end. If I had, I probably would have a book. Mm -hmm. um, and I still enjoy writing, but um, I'm afraid the specific anecdotes, the quotes, and the material that would flesh it out and make it readable are lost to me. Um, although I have boxes and storage trunks in the basement that may have some of that but uh, some of that goes back to my earliest days in Delaware, and it's probably only amusing to myself. <laughs> As we look back to all your years at WDBJ7, first I guess I should ask, are you liking retirement? Yes, but I kind of miss talking to more than my partner at home. <laughs> She's great, but um, yeah. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks for asking, Larry. <laughs> um, you know, you, you spend, uh, it was 40 years altogether in yeah. my various uh, occupations on the air. It's an outlet mm -hmm. that once it's gone, I don't know that I missed doing it actually, but uh, it was, it, when it was good, it was so good that I missed the good old days. Sure. I get that. I miss working with some of those folks that you mentioned, uh, some of the people that I had the pleasure of uh, anchoring with, for example. Well, you certainly worked with the best That's um, true. over the years. Is there anything you would want to say to folks who turn to you every evening at Channel 7 during the week? If, if you could go and thank every viewer you ever had, uh, this is your opportunity. Uh, what, what would you say to them? You know, I think there is something, and it's probably not what you might expect, but I think I tended to be always in a hurry, and I would encounter people almost daily. In fact, for years, I mean literally years after I retired, mm -hmm. people would come up to me and tell me they watch me every night present tense. I watch you every night. And I quit correcting them. I would simply thank them. But I wish that I had taken the time to be more gracious about it, because I always felt like that deadline clock was ticking. And I didn't have time to be chatting with the person who sees me on TV. And I would, I, I'm sure that I would always be kindly and respectful. In fact, my kids always said, would walk away from an encounter like that and say, did you know that person? And sometimes they'd be, you know, want to give you a hug and yeah, chat. Yeah, yeah. And I would always say, no, but I, I want to meet people on the level that they expect mm -hmm. of me. And so sometimes it would be rather intimate. Yeah. And I'm just saying that I ask for their forgiveness if I wasn't, if I didn't take enough time to revel in the fact that they wanted me to know how much my presence in their living room meant to them. Your presence in my living room, in their living room, certainly explained the day's news for so many, uh, for so many years. And I want to thank you personally for doing that.
You were a great co-worker, even though I was on one side of the clock and you were at the other. We rarely we, saw each yeah, other. Yeah, we'd see each other uh, very rarely. But, Keith, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for being here for Episode 39 of Larry Dowdy Mike Side with Keith Humphrey. If you like Mike Side, follow us wherever you download your podcasts, and I hope you'll share this podcast with someone by simply clicking the share button. There's a new episode every other week. I hope you'll join us next time for Larry Dowdy Mike Side. See you then.